0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host of this channel. Today I'm speaking with Rebecca Herman about her new book, Cooperating with the Colossus, a social and political history of U.S. military bases in World War II Latin America, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Rebecca Herman is Assistant Professor of History at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Rachel. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
2: So could you begin by telling us about how you came to this project? Sure.
1: Um, I think, well, I don't know how far back to go, (laughs) but I'd say I sort of started down this path as an undergraduate at Duke. The first class that I took in Latin American history was a class with Jolie Alcott, and it was called Communist Kingpins and Counterinsurgencies. And it was sort of a history of the Americas um, that was quite eye-opening in terms of exposing me to histories of of the United States and the world and U.S. foreign policy in Latin America that I had not been exposed to before. And um, I ended up kind of creating a major at Duke that was organized around trying to learn about things that my K-12 through 12 education had failed to, to tell me about. And a big part of that was Latin American history. Um, so I became interested in Latin America a little bit through uh, this um, U.S. foreign policy perspective, and then I departed from that perspective and became interested in Latin American history in its own right. Um, I did some research in Santiago, Chile uh, after my junior year in college, and then I wrote a thesis about Chilean collective memory. Um, I graduated from college and moved to Argentina and spent most of the next four years in Buenos Aires. And when I uh, applied to graduate school, I imagined that I would um, you know, get my PhD in Latin American history focused on the Southern Cone. Uh, but the project I ended up developing into a dissertation, which became this book, um, kind of brought me back around to that uh, initial interest in understanding the relationship between the United States and Latin America. Um, How that happened, you know, I have good friends where they begin their journey with some set of questions that they're eager to answer. And that's what drives them to define a project. For me, I stumbled into a story that I just thought was really interesting. And I wasn't really sure what it would allow me to speak about conceptually, but I wanted to know more. And that was enough. Um, And that was uh, this part of the story that you probably saw in the book where during World War II, uh, the war department, the U.S. War Department contracted Pan American Airways to build air bases in Latin America under the guise of commercial expansion. So something i never heard of before. I was very curious about it. And so I followed that into the archives. And then once I started looking into this history of basing during World War II, all sorts of really fascinating stories started to emerge around You know, conflicts over labor rights and and labor legislation uh, for workers who are building U.S. bases, conflicts over gender relations and sex work near these bases, fights over who had the right to hold U.S. soldiers accountable before the law. So contests over criminal jurisdiction and all of these sort of ground level uh, conflicts echoed conflicts that were playing out in the international sphere around the difficulties of reconciling national sovereignty with international cooperation, especially with a power like the United States. And so um, that's sort of what took me on that on that journey. And there was just a lot of sort of trying to follow the evidence through different archives and trying to put the pieces together to figure out what the story was that was emerging. Um, and through that process, the concepts and the the big questions I was able to think about by looking at these bases became more clear.
2: So let's actually dig into one of those um, big concepts, the idea of cooperation. And you explained to us that this is kind of a loaded term when we're looking at the history of inter-American relations. So could you tell us about what some of our received notions about U.S.-Latin-American cooperation are and how your book helps us rethink those?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to, you know, there's a reason why that class I took at Duke wasn't cooperation, communist kingpins and counterinsurgencies. And that's because cooperation is just not a concept that comes to mind when you think about the region, right, and, and inter-American relations. Um, and that's because of this really deep and problematic and prolonged history of U.S. interventionism in the Americas. And that is the story that really has, um, you know, called the attention of a lot of scholars for good reason, and has really been a focal point of how we tell that history. Um, And I think because of that, World War II, which is the period that my book focuses on, isn't a very prominent part of the history of U.S.-Latin American relations, because it's kind of this atypical moment of harmony and unity in the Americas. And so it doesn't really fit. It's sort of this weird outlier. um, And it it is often kind of brushed over as this sort of weird moment between two periods of intervention, right? The early 20th century, um, repeated US military interventions in the Circum Caribbean, and then the Cold War US interventions uh, as part of the sort of anti communist charge. And so Pan American unity in World War II is kind of seen as this atypical moment that was later kind of rendered inconsequential by the nature of US security concerns during the Cold War. But one thing that, you know, I really have noticed and valued about the scholarship over the last couple of decades is this real focus on not just U.S. intervention in the Americas or U.S. policy in the Americas, but how Latin Americans have tried to engage U.S. power in the region and engage U.S. resources in the region. Um, so flipping the lens a little bit, um, you know, as someone who entered uh, Berkeley as a Latin Americanist, I was really interested in focusing uh, first and foremost on on Latin American actors, and um, from that perspective, cooperation begins to emerge as this really fascinating throughline in the history of the Americas. From my perspective, because it's the case that throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, people across the ideological spectrum have have considered the fact that maybe with the right guardrails in place, with international norms established, with you know international organizations that could serve as a forum then maybe cooperation with the United States could be a beneficial thing, right? There's this really powerful neighbor to the North. Um, And so as I was looking at this history of cooperation in World War II Latin America, I started to feel that um, dismissing any sort of cooperation in in the early 20th century or the Cold War period as a charade was uh, not quite right. And taking cooperation during World War II just at face value was also not quite right. And if we take a critical approach to thinking about cooperation with the Colossus of the North as a field of contest, then you can see more of a a through line across the 20th century. And from that perspective, World War II becomes this really important turning point as opposed to some weird blip.
2: So thinking about that particular moment of World War II, um, and we might be thinking Latin America was not a major theater of this war, but you're saying to us that World War II, it really actually is an important time period for understanding Latin American history. So could you situate Latin America in the global context of that moment and then talk to about why Cuba, Brazil and Panama are the countries you chose to focus on in this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... Uh, Latin America in World War II. You're absolutely right. It's not the first region that comes to mind. Um, <clears throat> but from the United States perspective, particularly before the attack on Pearl Harbor, Latin America was the most uh, important space in thinking about U.S. national security and defense planning. Um, from the late 1930s, uh, U.S. defense strategists became, you know, really concerned about the prospect of a transatlantic attack on the Americas. Um, and particularly a scenario in which German forces could cross the South Atlantic from West Africa, um, you know, arrive in the Brazilian Northeast, which was largely indefensible at this point, And then from there would, you know, join up with a, an imagined fifth column of Nazi sympathizers and could attack the Panama Canal or invade the United States. Um, so this invasion scenario inspired a lot of early defense planning. And in particular, there was a call for the establishment of defensive air bases across the Americas that the United States could use to defend the hemisphere from an extra hemispheric attack. Now, this is well before the United States joins the war. Um, And it's also really problematically only a few years after the United States, had sort of formally declared the good neighbor policy and, um, you know, conceded to Latin American demands that the United States embrace a policy of non-intervention in the Americas. So the U.S. military has this sort of really loaded um, uh, political baggage attached to it. So even if the, um, if the United States is able to court the allegiance of Latin American allies in the war effort, there's a real recognition in the State Department that establishing U.S. bases in the region is going to be really politically sensitive and probably impossible. Um, so that's how Latin America situated in the war from the United States perspective before the war began. Uh, after the United States joins the war, those air bases that they create end up being really important to the Allied victory because the U.S. was able to use those air bases as a way of ferrying supplies to the Allies across the Atlantic. So first they were thought of as defensive. Later they became really, a really important logistical chain. Um, and, and Brazilians in particular are, are really proud of their contribution to the war. From that perspective, the Brazilian Northeast and Natal is where one of the biggest U.S. bases was located. Brazilians call it the springboard to victory. So the way that I chose Cuba, Panama, and Brazil, um, well, initially, so this early program that I mentioned previously, where the War Department contracted Pan American Airways to build airfields under the guise of commercial expansion, the very top priority on the list of airfields that the War Department wanted Pan Am to build was in Cuba. Um, Cuba's always been this really important um, place in U.S. national defense thinking uh, as like a key node in the Caribbean. It was also um, a a sort of Imagine to be a way station between the U.S. and Puerto Rico, where the U.S. was building between the continental U.S. and Puerto Rico, I should say, where the U.S. was building uh, a lot of defense construction during this period. Um, so Cuba was at the top of the of their priority list, which is what led me to look there. And then Brazil was this place that was so important to U.S. defense thinking on the eve of World War II because of this, you know, scenario of a, of a transatlantic attack. Once I got into the archives and started seeing uh, these common sort of narratives emerge that I, I, I recognized would be the anchors for, for the book, it became clear to me that the Pan Am component of the story was actually not as important as I thought it was going to be. And I was more interested in all of these bases, whether they were built by Pan Am or not. And in fact, in Cuba, the base that I ended up focusing on the most closely wasn't one of the Pan Am bases. It was built by a different contractor. So once I sort of de-centered Pan Am and was more broadly interested in the U.S. military presence across Latin America during this period, Panama became really essential because Panama hosted 134 defense sites outside of the Canal Zone. So that's not even counting the the bases within the Canal Zone. And um, so... uh, I guess the shorter answer to your question is that I ended up focusing on these three countries because they were the three countries that were the most important to U.S. defense planning. So I could see the kinds of stories I was interested in telling were the most pronounced there.
2: So the book's first chapter looks at Guantanamo, which is probably the most famous U.S. military base in the region um, and also one of the oldest. Could you tell us something about its history and what that history meant for eventually creating more bases in later decades?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, the Guantanamo base was acquired um, in the early 20th century during this sort of heyday of U.S. interventionism in the Circum-Caribbean. And it was facilitated by the U.S. occupation of Cuba uh, after the United States intervened in Cuba's wars for independence from Spain rather than, um, it, you know, leave Cuba immediately once uh, That war ended, the U.S. went on to occupy Cuba for four years. And as a requirement for the U.S. to end that occupation, Cubans were forced to accept something called the Platt Amendment into their new constitution. And the Platt Amendment included a number of stipulations that were really offensive to Cuban sovereignty. One of them was that Cuba would provide the United States with coaling stations. And uh, Guantanamo was already um, sort of on the table as one of the locations that the U.S. was interested in establishing a base. So because of its origins, especially, Guantanamo was really kind of a symbol of the bad old days of U.S. foreign policy. And it survived the shift towards the good neighbor policy, even though the Platt Amendment was abrogated. Um, But it it continued to be this sort of lightning rod of anti-U.S. sentiment. Um, this was a problem because from the perspective of U.S. defense strategists, ill will towards the United States was now, you know, a threat to U.S. national security because it might create, uh, you know, more um, sort of a breeding ground for for Axis sentiment. And so when the U.S. was going to pursue establishing new defense sites in the region, the specter of Guantanamo kind of hung over the whole affair because. U.S. officials didn't want it to look like they were just sort of creating a whole bunch of Guantanamos around the region. And perhaps more importantly, uh, popular leaders in power in Latin America didn't want to be seen as allowing the United States to create Guantanamos in their countries. Or, you know, in in Cuba's case, create more Guantanamos in Cuba. Another uh, sort of important development is that... um, you know, in Cuba, there's a new constitution uh, written in 1940 that explicitly uh, pro- prohibited the leasing of further Cuban territory to any foreign power. And that was in part specifically thinking about Guantanamo. And so there are these new constraints on US power in place as a result, on the one hand, of U.S. security concerns around ill will, and on the other hand, as a result of the rise in mass politics across the region that had created a new political climate for Latin American leaders who were trying to figure out how to participate in their relationships with the United States. So in that sense, Guantanamo really kind of hangs over the whole affair. Uh, One of the ways that I use Guantanamo in that first chapter is to show how the nature of domestic and international politics in the Americas have changed from 1903, 1904 to 1939, 1940, um, because ultimately during the war the U.S. tries to expand the territorial of limit, the territorial limits of Guantanamo and can't. And part of that reflects sort of the new landscape in which the United States is operating and having to figure out how to advance its interests in this new, um, under these new circumstances.
2: So similarly to other scholars who are working on U.S.-Latin American relations, and as you pointed out already, you're showing in this book that Latin American elites who negotiated with this colossus, the United States, they were pursuing their own political ends through cooperation. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about what those ends actually were and how much leverage they really had when U.S. officials, you know, sort of came knocking, asking for military bases?
1: For leaders in Latin America, because military bases were going to be such a contentious undertaking, and because U.S. uh, diplomats especially were really concerned about goodwill in the region, this was a moment where Latin American leaders had probably more leverage than they'd ever had before or since. Because when uh, goodwill in the Americas is seen as a national security imperative, the U.S. government is much more predisposed to um, invest in positive relationships with Latin American partners. And so when it came to bases, oftentimes Latin American leaders would, um, you know, directly negotiate quid pro quo exchanges. Uh, If we're going to provide, um, you know, defensive airfields for you and you really are serious about us being equal partners in the defense effort, then we're going to need modern military equipment. We're going to need modern weapons. And so, for example, Getulio Vargas, who was especially successful in this way, used the war and the United States' concerns about German influence growing in the region to um, really demand uh, aid in return in ways that were really targeted towards Brazilian uh, nation-building objectives. Um, so military modernization was a really big one. This is also the time when the United States begins taking a much more active role in training Latin American security forces before this military advisors in the region, uh, more commonly came from Europe. And that's especially true in South America. Um, but then there was a, there were a number of other ways that, uh, Latin American leaders tried to, uh, uh, navigate U.S. demands for basing because part of it was recognizing the practical opportunity to to gain aid from the United States that the U.S. might not otherwise not be interested in providing. Um, but they also wanted to be able to show, um, you know, their citizens that they were getting something in return. This was particularly the case in Panama, where when the war began, um, there was an arch nationalist in power who had really, you know, used anti-U.S. sentiment as part of his political cachet. And so if he was going to be entering into a relationship with the United States that was going to permit the U.S. to to increase its military presence in Panama really significantly, he wanted to be able to go out to the public and say, look at all of these things I've gotten in return. Sea times have changed. I'm the first president who's managed to get the United States to really treat us as an equal peer. And so for them, the optics of aid were really important as well beyond the more practical desire to use U.S. resources to advance local uh, nation-building objectives.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Moving into the realm of the local interactions on these military bases, um, your book it looks at both the tensions and the opportunities that the arrival of a base could bring. And the social and the political histories that you uncover, they deal with all kinds of topics from labor, race, sex and gender, and the law. So, could you tell us a story or two from your research about one or more of these bases that illustrate some of the tensions and opportunities that a base could bring? So,
1: one example the first, the really first set of tensions to to arise on the ground that illustrate the kind of difficulty in reconciling international cooperation with national sovereignty uh, came up around labor. Um, The defense contractors that built US defense sites hired local workers. And in Brazil and Cuba especially, these are two places that had just recently um, passed new and quite progressive labor laws, and in many cases more progressive than the labor laws in place in the United States. And defense contractors from the beginning were not particularly interested in observing those laws that would uh, slow down construction, so limits on work hours, for example, or increase the costs of construction. Um, or in some cases, they were just ignorant to the laws and failed to uphold them because they weren't um, sort of, uh, they didn't care to. <laughs> and so um, I think an example that I give in the Cuban case is there's this worker who's on his way to work one day at the, the base in de Los Banos, and he gets hit by a bus when he's crossing the street as he's about to enter the base. Under Cuban uh, workers' compensation law, he would be entitled to the United States or the employer paying for his medical care. Uh, under U.S. law, um, it, the the workers' comp only applies to workers when they're actively working, so it doesn't cover workers who are on their way to work. Um, and so, in little moments like this, you know, who is responsible for this guy's medical bills? These bigger questions about you know whose law applies is the united states exerting extraterritorial authority are they are they you know violating the laws of these host nations who have allowed them in and these questions of jurisdiction would kind of ignite these broader debates around uh, national sovereignty and u.s power um, another example that gets maybe more at some of the the um, cultural authority that seemed to be at stake is uh, an episode when um, two U.S. soldiers were arrested with two Brazilian women when they were exiting a movie theater in the north Brazil in in the town of Billing. Um, there was tons of paperwork. I mean, there were cases of manslaughter that produced less paperwork than this case of this theater incident, as it came to be known, did. And the issue was that the U.S. soldiers were arrested for what was called moral offense. Um. U.S. authorities could not figure out what was so offensive about their behavior because they were operating uh, with a different moral code in mind. And so uh, in places in the northern Brazil, the U.S. military presence quickly became associated with this kind of degrading moral influence, uh, particularly around women from elite families. There was a a really big concern that U.S. soldiers were going to corrupt and dishonor uh, women from elite families. And so the arrest of these soldiers for moral offense was kind of a small battle in this larger struggle to uh, preserve, um, you know, local social customs and social norms and to prevent the U.S. presence from, you know, uh, disrupting uh, local culture. And so these little battles end up having these bigger ramifications. You can see how local people react to them. You can see how governments try to manage them. And uh, throughout those core chapters where I'm looking at problems on the ground, I'm really interested at seeing how the local, national, and international responses to these things interact with one another and shape one another.
2: Can you talk to us a little bit about heterogeneity among all the different bases you were looking at? Um, Were there some that integrated with local communities more or less successfully? Yeah. Well,
1: one thing I want to say is I, you know, I opened the book saying there are over 200 defense installations that are built during the war and those between them in terms of just heterogeneity there, they varied pretty wildly in terms of the size and the scope. So some of them were really teeny tiny little, uh, you know, radar sites, for example. Uh, In other cases, these are full fledged bases of the sort that you probably picture when you think about U.S. military base. Um, But in terms of what uh, local relations looked like from base to base, you see um, common points of conflict, and that was why the middle chapters of the book end up being organized around uh, the kinds of conflicts over governance that arise, rather than a base, you know, a chapter on bases in Brazil, a chapter on bases in Cuba, a chapter on bases in Panama. But what's really productive about looking at a number of different bases is you can see how differently authorities resolved these conflicts from place to place. And the reason I thought that was really valuable is you can see how adaptable um, uh, security cooperation is, both as a tool for advancing U.S. interests and also um, as sort of a a tool for the Latin American elite. Um, So one example would be around the question of labor laws, just to give you a sense. In Cuba, um, the United States has a much longer history of interventionism in Cuba, of course. Uh, The U.S. government also had a closer relationship to the Cuban government from early on in the war. Um, The Cuban Minister of Labor ends up willing to create a resolution that gives U.S. defense projects exemption from certain aspects of Cuban labor law. Um, And so when the U.S. government wants to save money by building these bases without having to observe the requirements of Cuban labor legislation, they're able to ultimately convince the Cuban government to work with them on that and to formally give uh, U.S. defense contractors exemption. In Brazil, where the U.S. really doesn't have that kind of pull, where Brazil has historically been much more independent of U.S. um, more independent of of, um, U.S. interventionism, certainly, but also just more geopolitically independent from the United States because of its location and its size. Um, Chetulio Vargas goes about this same problem in a really different way. The U.S. thinks about trying to get um, Vargas to give them the same kind of exemption that they've gotten in Cuba, but that's just politically impractical for him. And so what he does instead is kind of quietly lean on Brazilian labor courts to interpret the laws in ways that reflect US interests. So there's this sort of concerted campaign to educate labor court judges to the preferences of the Brazilian Ministry of Labor. And um, ultimately the United States does in practice get exemption from labor laws by, uh, through this other means. Um, so in that sense, I thought that the, the comparative value of looking at, at how these things play out across different sites was really useful. Uh, another example of this is when it comes to how to regulate prostitution, the way that US base officials end up regulating local sex industries, really varies from site to site. And it's based on, you know, the geography of red light districts, the predisposition of local officials to work with them in this uh, endeavor, um, and, a, and another number of other local issues. And so um you see a real diversity of the way conflicts manifest and then also the way conflicts are resolved at each site.
2: Moving forward to the post-war period, um, could you tell us a little bit about what happened to these bases when World War II ends?
1: Yes. uh, For the most part, the bases uh, cease to be U.S. bases. So a lot of them become uh, national military bases for the countries where they're built Uh, Some of them become airports, right? One of the real perks for Latin American leaders in permitting these airfields to be built was this is a moment where you know aviation is becoming more and more important, and this is a kind of national infrastructure that's really expensive to build, and so it was a big advantage to have you know the United States spend the money to build all of these airfields across the region. Um, In some cases, the United States is eager to keep to retain uh, rights to these bases in a number of places that ends up being really politically impractical almost everywhere. So in two cases, they make pretty significant strides to maintaining rights, to maintain the bases in Panama, uh, a treaty is even completed and signed by the two foreign ministries. But then in Panama, there's massive nationwide protests against the signing of, against the congressional approval of that agreement. And, uh, you know, the, uh, Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets in opposition to the continuation of US uh, occupation of these new bases in Panama and ultimately compel the Panamanian National Assembly to, to reject the treaty. And the US is, is um, forced to withdraw from those places.
2: Thinking about uh, the popularity of Cold War studies in Latin American history at this moment. Could you explain to us a little bit about what your work could, um, you know, have to say to that new body of scholarship?
1: Yeah, I think one of the really significant things for me about World War II is that so many of the so many of the really consequential strategies for advancing or defending U.S. interests in the region that are so devastating during the Cold War. Take shape in the World War II period. So, as I mentioned before, this is a moment of origins for these really close connections between the security forces of the Americas. This is the beginning of the U.S. Uh, training Latin American security forces across the hemisphere, and not just in the places where the United States had previously occupied. Uh, this is there's an effort in the post-war period to try to standardize weapons in the Americas to make Latin American security forces more aligned and connected to the United States and to prevent the kinds of relationships that um, Latin American security forces used to have with European powers and the school of the Americas, which is this famous military training center where Latin American officers would go for um, training courses and later did a lot of counterinsurgency training that was implicated in, in human rights atrocities in the cold war era. That school of the Americas is created right after the war as a way to try to institutionalize some of these uh, important relationships that were created during the war. And, uh, you know, this is also true for the idea that investing in the quality of life of people in Latin America, investing in development in the region can be a counterinsurgency technique. So that's not the language that they're using during world war II but the reason that the United States was willing to invest so heavily in Latin America during World War II was in part because they thought that investing in the develop- economic development of the region would help to stem the spread of fascism. Um, so we see that again later with you know programs like the Alliance for Progress. If we uh, improve the quality of life of people in the region, that will make them less vulnerable to communism. <laughs> um and so um, basing as a feature of U.S.-Latin American relations remains really problematic. And while, the US, uh, while U.S. basing really proliferates around the globe in the post-war period, you don't see nearly as many U.S. bases in Latin America, in part because of the changing nature of the security threat, but also in part because of these other uh, more discrete modes of intervention that the United States has practiced during the war and has sort of established uh, during the war. So I think in all these ways, there's some um, some real continuity and uh, and you can see how, you know, during the Cold War, cooperating with the Colossus remains something that people in the region um, often aim to do. Uh, It's just that the folks who are most successful at it tend to be, you know, human rights abusing right wing authoritarians, but they're still using the language of security cooperation. And US security interests to advance their own agendas. And so, from that perspective, you do see this this continuous through line.
2: So, for the benefit of our listeners who don't get to look at this really fascinating map that you have at the beginning of the book of the location of all of these different US defense sites in the region, I noticed that on that map, you actually say that there could even be more defense sites. Um, and I was really intrigued by this, that um, is there something about this history um, maybe that you discovered through your research process that's been sort of hidden or written over? It seems like something that we would know, you know, where was the U.S., um, you know, sort of establishing these sites in Latin America during this time?
1: Yeah, this was one of the most challenging parts of the research was just trying to compile a list. And I'm sure that I've missed some. Um There's no, you know, in all the archives I worked in, there's no definitive list of where all the U.S. defense sites established during the war were located. And because the United States used a number of different contractors to build the sites, there was no way to even find, you know, a series of contracts that would include all of the locations where defense sites were built. Um, So the list that I gave to the cartographer who made that map was really cobbled together over the years through all different sources. And I, I feel pretty confident that it's bound to be incomplete. And so I, I hope to hear from readers in the future who might have personal interests in this um, about any other sites that I might have missed. Um, yeah, you know, it was I, I'll see the textbooks on U.S.-Latin American relations, for example, will often mention the bases in passing, particularly uh, in North, northeastern Brazil. I think those were there. That's where they're the, they're the most well-known, particularly because they were so important to the war effort. But the, the story really has not re- received a lot of attention. And so a lot of the work when I was doing the research was just reconstructing what happened.
2: Well, it's a fascinating story that you've been able to tell as a result of that. Looking a little bit ahead to, I guess, maybe other things we can expect from you in the future. Could you tell us a little about what you're working on these days?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's still, you know, taking shape and um, the framing has changed a, a little bit over the last year or so. I mean, I started doing research on a second book project in 2019 um, um, <clears throat> for a number of reasons, I guess, that you know the pandemic sort of stalled out. But um, since 2019, I had been doing research on the history of the Chilean and Argentine Antarctic. So Argentina and Chile both have sovereignty claims to parts of the Antarctic Peninsula. And, you know, I'm really interested in questions of sovereignty and governance and nationalism. And so this was something that really caught my curiosity when I first learned about it. Um, In particular, during the Cold War period, Argentina and Chile both tried to establish civilian settlements and to colonize Antarctica with civilians as part of their effort to reassert their claims to that territory when a number of broader issues on the global stage really seemed to threaten the sort of status quo of Antarctic governance. So that was the story I first became interested in, and I started digging into the Argentine and Chilean foreign ministry records and and that sort of thing. But over the last year or so, what I began to realize was there is a certain part of the story I found especially captivating, which is around... um, this moment where globally people are starting to think about environmental problems in more global terms and that sort of globalizing thinking about the environment and environmental problems really conflicted with nationalism and sovereignty, particularly in less wealthy countries in ways that become uh, really thorny and that actually really resonate in today's headlines around, you know, um, challenges around global uh, efforts to address climate change. And so I realized that rather than write a book about Antarctica, where part of the story is environmental politics, what I wanted to do was write a book about environmental politics, where Antarctica is one of the places where I ground myself. So now I've been developing a project that I envision sort of locating myself in different chapters, in different key sites, where the conflict between uh, international environmental activism, globalized ways of thinking about the environment, uh, sort of run, uh, sort of butt heads with uh, plans for economic development and sort of symbols of nationalism and and national sovereignty. So, um, Antarctica is a really important case. Another I've been looking into is uh, a project to build a nuclear waste dump in Patagonia uh, during the same period. Um, i'm looking I'm returning to the Amazon where I spent time for my first book to look at uh, deforestation um and then there are a few other ideas that are still a little bit um less fully fleshed out, so stay tuned.
2: That sounds very exciting, so I'm sure we all will be indeed tuned in. We've been speaking today with Rebecca Herman about her book, Cooperating with the Colossus, a social and political history of US military bases in World War II Latin America. Rebecca, thanks so much for this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me.